This is Manu. Can you hear me? Yes, it's one of your hosts from Podcast Sans Frontieres coming to you with a special announcement. I've started a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. The Patreon will help support Podcast Sans Frontieres and a few other projects which I'll get to shortly. Since you're listening to this on your Metal Gear feed, let's start there. On top of our ongoing games coverage, we want to bring you more interviews and deep dives into Metal Gear adjacent media. This will include episodes with speedrunners, documentarians, as well as just thoughtful fans weighing in on the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Additionally, we hope to review upcoming films like No Time to Die and Matrix Resurrections and how they compare to the Solid series. We also plan to dive into some of Kojima's favorite films, including those from John Carpenter, James Cameron, and the aforementioned Bond franchise. We hope to make this a monthly feature soon and have patrons vote on which films we cover. In addition to expanding podcasts on Frontieras, I want to announce two other projects I have coming your way. First, in anticipation of the 20th anniversary of the Lord of the Rings films, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a celebration of the iconic trilogy, which I will be doing alongside my good friend, and massive Tolkien nerd, Emily Robinson, who you can find at Emily Robinson PT on Twitter. Together, we hope to show our quality as we delve greedily into the cinematic and emotional depths of our favorite fellowship. This podcast will launch in October 2021. Next up is Searching for Friends, a Final Fantasy VI podcast. Any Podcast Sans Frontierist listener will know I talk glowingly about this game all the time, so I grabbed one of my best friends, Steven, to help break down this seminal SNES RPG. Something just feels right about covering a game that sees a world broken beyond recognition and the work we must do to mend it. We promise to bring the 16-bit classic to life, or I'm the son of a submariner. This podcast will launch later this year. And that's just where my mission begins. A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, Studio Ghibli, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and Marvel Comics and Cinematic Universe are just some of the other ideas I have for content in 2022. This initial launch of the Patreon is just to help keep the lights on and my cats fed, but stretch goals, subscriber polls, and bonus Patreon-only content will all be announced in due time. As they say, the best is yet to come. Check it out at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. This is Snake. Do you read me? 
I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Age of Heroes, our second episode on 2008's Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots. Today, we will refamiliarize ourselves with the new snake, which is our old snake, who is now old snake, as well as Otacon as we kick off the game story proper. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So, who is David Hayter? Oh, Accomplished actor, screenwriter, voice of a generation, well, I... citizen of the world. Uh, yeah, well, I never... Ripped from the comfortable childhood in Canada thrown into the turbulent waters of adolescence in Kobe, Japan. How did you stay afloat? You mean, you mean in high school? So before we start the narrative about how we all are dehumanized beyond repair, let's kick things off on a lighter note. Let's talk about the TV channel intro to this game. We know that for MGS 2 and 3, Kojima employed Kyle Cooper of Seven fame to create the opening title sequences. For MGS4, the team would turn to Alexei Tylovich, whose credits would go on to include Marvel's Avengers from 2012, Zombieland, and those silhouette iPod commercials from the aughts. When you start a new game in MGS4, you are subjected to about two and a half minutes of TV. Twelve and a half minutes total were created. Several channels with tangential or Easter egged MGS content, as well as commercials for the four main PMCs Snake will encounter in story. The idea was to create television content that would theoretically exist in the world of Metal Gear to immerse the player, or in other words, give them a sense of what this reality would be like. To that end, Tylovich with his studio Logan worked with Kojima and producer Kenichiro Imazumi to produce five channels that the player could flip between. The channels would show two and a half minutes of a fictional television program and then a 30 second commercial that would cut off midway before the game started. Again, the whole idea was to paint a picture of what this world of snakes and metal gears would look like in 2014. Forever wore abroad, but shopping and cooking channels domestically with armed forces advertisements in the middle. Sound familiar? Actual filming began in October 2007, which gave it a small window to complete prior to the game's release the following summer. As recounted by Tylovich, everything they shot immediately went into post-production because of the deadline whether or not the footage would end up being used. For these live-action sequences, Logan roped in the actual game's voice actors to appear and perform on camera. The Game Show channel's host is played by Richard Doyle, who voices Big Boss in this game, and MGS heads will remember he voiced the Fury in MGS3. Other channels include a cooking show, full-on with a skinned alligator head meant to recall the hunting and eating systems of MGS3. There's also an aerobics channel, as well as a nature channel showcasing octopi in the wild using camouflage abilities to hide and attack under the sea. So I really like, you mentioned the uh, the MGS actors. I like that Richard Doyle has a little obvious, like, Satan motif going with, uh, there's a little weird headset that he's got on behind him or whatever. It's like the part of his chair he maybe is sitting in. The, uh, the, the, the contestant also has it, so I don't know if that's just, but the angle they start him with, with that, he's very obviously meant to look like Satan. Uh, I love that Christopher Randolph is playing the contestant's husband, just looking like a dork. 
which is weird because he's a handsome guy, but he's very good at looking like a dork. Um, the uh, the cooking show is fun because it's a does Kojima shows up, which I think I think at this point it's not even an Easter egg. But I think most people know about it. He uh, there's a there's a if you don't there's a two or three frames in the middle of that where the camera kind of turns. They have a, a they cut to a one that's looking towards the right. And he's just like standing there silently watching the whole thing happen, but not reacting at all, which is creepy. Um, so especially creepy because it has that late 2000s green screen look, which we all know. The uh, the Revenge of the Sith look where it's like this. It's so obviously unreal that it's like it, your brain doesn't really process it. Mm-hmm. And that I don't know if that was deliberate for this or that just may have been, you know, they had so little time. They had, the production schedule was so hectic that they just kind of had to slop it on there. But it really works. It, it's become just really unreal and, and bizarre, which I think is the point of all of these. These are all, we all know what cooking shows look like. We all know what like treacly, weird, uh, not, uh, just like saccharine, inter- like one-on-one inter- CNN style interviews look like. We all know what, what nature shows look like and, and uh, uh, aerobics shows and all that and and we all uh, game shows we all know what this stuff looks like but it all looks so bizarre and strange to us that i think it really is meant to be truly surreal and it really works i just gonna say it's kind of like let's say the most eisley cantina it's like a concept Mm -hmm. we're Mm -hmm. intimately familiar with but then it's existing in a different world and obviously that's much more out there than say uh the world of metal gear but that's the same idea it's like one foot in something you know and one foot in something you don't i but i particularly like the cooking show as like a uh, piece of world building because it um it uh it's meant to be like a funny cook like this guy's cooking up truly disgusting cre- like creatures we don't like alligators and and mm-hmm. for uh, not frogs people eat frogs but like just like truly it's vultures and stuff like just stuff that you would not eat but i think the implication is supposed to be that that scarcity like the world has become so militarized that all surplus goes to the pmcs and it's even more it's a world that's at such like desperate a desperate state of war that like i think this is meant to be a cooking show for people who actually don't have food it's like you get shit you found on the road and this is how you cook it, which is really bleak and uh, may or may not be a, a harbinger of things to come for the uh, uh, a world population that has much smaller access to arable and farmable land. Uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon, though, so don't worry about it. I also really quickly enjoy the uh, – I think my other favorite is the uh, – the aerobic show because a that's like a, a big thing in the 90s and 2000s was like ex-military people like, you're gonna get in shape by mm-hmm. you're gonna get in drill sergeant shape by doing 10 minutes of aerobics a day like boot camp and crossfit yeah crossfit in particular but that's like such a it's such a vapid it's like we, we we're not given time enough to to actually like do those kinds of workouts with our with the responsibilities heaped upon us by capitalism. So like it's, it's really like it's everyone wants like to eat a pill that makes you skinny. It's like, you have to work at it as someone who's lost 30 pounds in the last 10 months. I'm not going to say I worked that hard on it, but I had to try. I had to like mm-hmm. deliberately change my, my eating habits and, and like it was slow going. And I, I think I actually lost weight much easier than most people would. I think I still have a good uh, metabolism, but anyway, that's just another thing that's like, in a world even more warlike and, and fast paced, that's the thing that really comes off with these commercials is just like even less, like even a more ADD addled world than our own. Um, I just really, I really like these. They all, they all have that Paul Verhoeven, especially the workout one have a Paul Verhoeven touch. Cause the guy, 
talks keeps talking about how hard he works, but then every few sentences he mentions that he eats these nanos, and it's like, well, that's why he's in good shape. He's he's eating nanomachines. He's ingesting nanomachines, son. So like, I just really enjoy. I really enjoy these as a piece of world building. I think they're about as they're about as ingenious and interesting a way to do this as I've ever seen the game do. They're like the books in an Elder Scrolls game, but they're not shoddily written like four pages of a, a random book. Um, these also are a good example too. We always talk about you can't give Kojima too much credit for Metal Gear because like the, he did not write these. He did not. I'm sure he had input, but he did not. These are not his. This is not like his script. And you can tell that because it's it moves quickly and is focused on a, on one specific theme and doesn't <laughs> isn't trying to talk about the entire breadth of human human history in one in one speech like he often does. Yeah, and the oral history I found on these commercials, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, what's it called, uh, Tylevich and his team, along with Ryan Payton, kind of turned it in, and they expected a bunch of notes from Kojima, and he's like, "No, this this is dope. <laughs> Let's you know drop it." Is basically what Kojima's uh, response was. You can see that because, like, I, I think these very very if if we're if we're going with the theme of this game is you know the world you know, war. Uh, completely warlike like that's the world of metal gear solid post metal gear solid 2 a world that has been fractured by pmcs like these work pretty well for that so i don't really know what he would have i don't know the notes he would have really Mm -hmm. not enough snake i mean snake's in there he gets he gets chopped in half at one point oh we'll we'll get to that (laughs) well no no the the actual like the cooking show guy he's like time to kill this snake the snake's life is at an end it's like oh no i know who that is i wonder who that i wonder who the spongebob thing hmm Who's that for? And uh, th- this isn't actually like symbolism or meaning or anything profound, but I do like your observation about how uh, Richard Doyle, aka the actor for Big Boss, is framed as like the devil figure. Just thinking about MGS5 mm-hmm. and the horn that's in Venom Snake's head, I don't think this is anything planned or an intentional link, but I think that's a fun way you can thematically. But I, I, I do, I do think that they they would have deliberately made the actor who plays Big Boss. Mm-hmm. They would have deliberately framed him as Satan. I don't think that's like that's not even oh, like deep. That's just like pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tylovich got to speak to his own Belarusian heritage in the commercial made for the Russian PMC Raven Sword. In this commercial, two women warriors were mid-air CQC fighting in a slow-motion sequence that was filmed using wires and a thousand frame per second camera to capture the slow motion. Tylovich says this was his emotional and melodramatic ode to Russian cinema, which he grew up watching. He name-drops Tarkovsky and Ingmar Bergman as influences. And his parents also worked in the film industry over there. You can even spot a broken statue of Lenin in the background of this commercial. So we could talk about the rest of the PMC commercials then, because that yeah, that go. one's that one's really cool. Like that one, I think is just more deliberately supposed to be cool. I think the Purev one and the Praying Mantis one and the Werewolf one are all deliberately like sorry, they're I mean they're like almost over the top satire. The Purev one was the Octopus one. I think people would know that if they if they've seen them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally like telling you to die, uh, play dead, give up life. You know, it's like such a blatant parody of military commercials which are all about you know sign up they're, they're literally like, come die mm-hmm, for us mm-hmm. that's what every military commercial is and that it's really fun looking back that they become more and more like this as technology has gotten better there's this one that's going around now still where it's like a guy walking the street and he's confronted by a digital version of himself who's screaming 
and it's implying that like the only way to quiet the the inner the cries of your soul is to join the army and die or join the army and kill brown people that'll make you feel better like it's such a we're getting to the point where they're almost beyond parody and they they look like this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um the werewolf one literally contains the phrase perfecting the world through the conquest of technology which is like a a hilarious like that's so over the top that i don't even think the the like the nate like u.s army commercials would do that one but also that's like hey that's what Metal Gear is about mm-hmm. um and then i i also like the uh the praying mantis one because it more just because it looks like every like scion car commercial from 2006 so it's like they really captured tylevich really really captured what trash american tv is like in the in the late 2000s fitting for the guy who made the ipod commercials with the silhouettes yeah According to Ryan Payton, who worked on MGS4 as well as Portable Ops, the intro was meant to symbolize the explosion of scope that is Metal Gear Solid 4. Multiple locations, new mechanics, all the characters, inside jokes, podcasts, and music in-game, Drebin and his diaper monkey. This game literally has everything imaginable and unimaginable, and they wanted to set that tone from the get-go. Most memorable of all the segments would be the David Hayter interview. Hater, of course, being the voice of Snake. His interviewer would be Lee Merriweather, who voices the older Eva in this game, and their rapport in the segment is meant to be motherly. One aspect I did enjoy about this was that Merriweather would lead Hater to answers that she wanted to hear, very much to his frustration. Gotta say, it reminds me very much of the type of journalism we see on mainstream cable news channels. It also acts like a lot of good Metal Gear Solid content does, in that space between the player and game the fabled meta. David Hayter being asked about his screenwriting career while wearing the solid eye is one of those things that has one foot in our reality and the other in snakes. It's definitely one of the series' odder choices, but I do think it's a good and memorable one. Yeah, it's it's like, actually, so there's, that, there's that moment when she asks him what wearing an eye patch where like, it's credit to David Hayter because he's a good actor and a good screenwriter and a good Twitter guy follower. Follow. Um, mm-hmm. He uh he has like a brief moment of realization of like oh god what am I doing here and then he just kind of snaps back into normal interview mode which really that to me is like it's one of the it's one of the few times in the series I think they really equal the psychomantis thing of just like being mm-hmm. so surreal and bizarre that it's kind of like it punches right through whatever sort of artifice of game there is and like actually frightens me at least the first time I saw it I don't frighten is the right word disquiet just like makes me like unnerved. It's also, I think one of the very few times I will ever use this word earnestly because I I'm on the internet and I know how badly it's misused. It is Lynchian. That's what Lynch does. Mm-hmm. Lynch, David Lynch is not creepy. He doesn't make scary movies. He makes movies that are discomforting and surrealist. And that's like the, you know, that's, he's a surrealist and that's a very surrealist kind of moment where it just sort of, it confuses and frightens you and confuses and frightens David Hayter until he starts talking about his movie again and how he's a tattoo of Kobe behind his ear and all that shit. I love it. The, the, the Hayter interview in particular is maybe my favorite. It's my favorite thing in this game and it's one of my four or five favorite things in Metal Gear as a concept. Yeah. I, I'm sure the first time through uh, playing this game, I was like Millhouse of the Poochie episode, waiting for the game to get to the fireworks factory. Mm-hmm. But on every playthrough since, it's literally something I've sat there and watched and tried to uh, watch in full. 
Um, and you mentioned uh, the Psychomantis battle. I actually forgot to add to our notes that um, among the TV channels, there's actually uh, a Hideo 1 and Hideo 2 like inputs, mm-hmm. um, as well as the uh, channels and commercials we went over. So um, that actually gets played a couple times in this game, uh, because uh, when we get to Sunny in the Nomad, uh, there will also be a Hideo 2 screen up amongst her mud- multiple monitors. So. It's a perfect encapsulation of why Metal Gear Solid will always be unique in a way no other game series is. It's a big, expensive swing just for immersion and fourth wall breaking. And as you say, it's just meant to unsettle unsettle you and disorient you. And all that is just extremely my shit. War has changed. ID tag soldiers carry ID tag weapons, use ID tag gear. Nanomachines inside their bodies enhance and regulate their abilities. Genetic control, information control, emotion control, battlefield control. Metal Gear Solid 4 opens up with the iconic lines we just played, narrated by a very grisly sounding solid snake. These words overlay a hooded man in a truck, huddled with a group of mercenaries as they drive deeper into a war zone. When they hit their rendezvous, the mercenaries jump out and immediately engage the PMC praying mantis. The hooded man, cigarette hanging from his lips, begins picking his way through the firefight. But all of a sudden, the PMC troops fall back as a strange sound engulfs the battlefield. It's a battalion of geckos, officially designated Irving by the U.S. Army, unarmed bipedal sentry robots patterned after Metal Gear Rex and Ray. These biomechanical sentinels stand 20 foot tall and have a wide array of sensors to detect enemies around corners and through cover, making them extremely effective at seek and destroy. The few gecko that arrive easily wipe the floor with the mercenaries. The hooded man is able to sneak through to some cover and goes to finally light that cigarette when he feels the trickle of blood on his shoulder. Looking up, with L1 triggers to first-person view during cutscenes, we see a gecko towering above, corpse in tow. The hooded man immediately opens fire and takes shelter in a nearby house. The man goes to reload, but another gecko heralds its entry with a loud moo before crashing in through the wall. The man rolls out of the way, his cloak flying off much like it did on the George Washington Bridge to open MGS2. We find a familiar shape in blue bandana and sneaking suit, but something's off. The figure looks up to reveal Solid Snake, but the caption quickly corrects to Old Snake to better befit the gray-haired, mustachioed man stage center. The geckos pursue Snake up to the second floor of the building, but Snake gives them the slip here. When the geckos arrive, they find a cardboard box with no place to Hideo written on it. Picking up some sort of biological form within, they go in for the kill as the box explodes in a shower of red. Not man flesh, though. It's watermelon flesh. Stumped, the gecko depart as Snake reveals himself a moment later. His suit had changed to blend in with the rubble, and crouched in silence, he safely watches the gecko pursuit peter out. Looks like watermelons back on the menu, boys. You got the man flesh voice I was going for. Snake picks up his cigarette, takes a drag, and the Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots title card appears over a war-torn Middle Eastern city. 
I just want to highlight here that the entire game is very specific with its fonts choice on all credits and title cards. It is done in the style of Japanese calligraphy, but written in American English alphabet. The Latin, the Latin alphabet. The Latin alphabet. Thank you, Mr. English Major, sir. The game takes a breather to catch us up on what's going on, and we'll do the same, doing our regular character breakdown of Old Snake, voiced by David Hayter. I'm no hero. Never was. Never will be. So we've come to it at last, the end of Solid Snake's story. This would be the last time Solid Snake was a playable character, and Kojima stated he'd prefer no one else carry on his story. So we're left with Old Snake, a tired old man whose rapidly deteriorating body is being held together by force of will alone, and, well, a fancy camo suit. I think I'm to the point where I can argue any of David Hayter's performances are his best, but man, this may be his best vocal performance as Snake. The gruff and age come through, but it's still recognizably solid Snake. He gets to run the entire gamut of performance, one-liners, sage words of wisdom, visceral yells, and annoyed growls. It all oozes the pathos of a man at death's door waiting to become a walking biological weapon in a matter of weeks. Visually, we mention the gray hair and sharp mustache. He's rocking a bit of a mullet, and the wrinkles are what really gives away his age. The blue bandana is back, and the default color of the octocamo is a deep blue not dissimilar to those of Snake's previous sneaking suits. And the solid eye makes his eye patch a phantom of big bosses, or in this game's parlance, a proxy. And I don't think that's accidental. As we shift to the thematic analysis of Old Snake, maybe we should talk about the big boss in the room. The sun is setting on the story of Solid Snake, while the story of his father rises from here on out. The two are forever linked, from the start of Metal Gear in 1987 to this game's very ending. In the opening interlude following the title card, we see Snake at Big Boss's grave, and when he salutes, you can press X as a flashback mechanic to see Big Boss saluting the boss's grave from Metal Gear Solid 3. Already, we get a sense that the stories are being linked to close the loop on this saga. Starting in this game, and especially into Peace Walker and B, the sins of the father theme really starts to take hold in Metal Gear Solid. We've only seen the origin of Big Boss so far, but already we the players know that we are atoning for the world that Big Boss and his generation left behind. Otacon will be doing much the same, though the character of Huey Emmerich is only a Wikipedia point as of MGS4. We will meet him in Peace Walker. And whereas we'll play Big Boss into his grand villainy, we get to watch Solid Snake go out a hero in his final adventure. Big Boss was fighting the times, as he thought was the will of the boss. He took aim at the powers that be, which eventually turned to everyone who aggrieved him. Solid Snake took up a similar, but simpler fight, to leave behind a better future. We discuss Solid Snake's self-actualization in MGS1, and the Philosopher King lecturing Raiden at the end of MGS2. The Snake of MGS4 is more tragic, sadder, more cynical, but he hasn't given up the idea of passing on something worthwhile to the next generation. That is the will of Solid Snake, tying it back to the discussion of sense last time out. He struggles, stumbles, crawls, and burns through every last punishment, but he always advances. Snake is, as MGS's want to do, a pawn to more powerful characters in the story. Naomi and Ocelot, namely, even Otacon and Campbell in respects, but every last one of them is banking on the will of Solid Snake to achieve their ends. 
That sense of duty extends beyond just his need to eliminate Liquid and the Patriots. Snake, from the literal opening start menu, is depicted as about to kill himself at the grave of Big Boss. The specter of death, the theme of one last mission, the final rest of Solid Snake hangs over the entire narrative. One last cigarette. It's evocative of themes from Wandering Samurai and Knight's Errant stories, or the old gunslinger having one last go of it. Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven comes to mind, and Old Snake may take a visual cue or two from his Bill Money character. And it's no mistake that Snake and Otacon's base of operations is called the Nomad, a military aircraft that houses them and Sonny. What little time I have left will be spent living as a beast, a shadow of the inside of the old age. Old Snake plays as many metaphors about games, gaming, and Kojima himself. Snake wasn't meant to live this long, but fans kept demanding Kojima come back to Metal Gear Solid, and in making this game, wanted to show his fatigue with how the standardization of war games and FPSs were progressing. The Solid series is long in the tooth, just a dinosaur among all these shiny first-person shooters you play from your ID-tagged consoles. We'll find out in Act 2 that Snake's aging is due to Terminator genes in his body, but the onset of the accelerated aging began shortly after the Big Shell incident. If you recall from the tanker, when Liquid first comes out and monologues at Snake, he is surprised the enhanced aging hadn't yet set in. Otacon nor any doctors could help Snake, and he was unable to aid Raiden in the rescue of Sunny. Otacon and Snake kept a low profile following the Big Shell incident, which took place five years before the events of MGS4. They covertly hunted the Patriots and Liquid, but to little success until Campbell pops up in the game's little interstitial after the title card. Campbell lets us know that Liquid Snake, in Revolver Ocelot's body, has accumulated massive power in the current war economy, currently operating the four largest PMCs in the world, with more firepower than even the U.S. military at this point. Liquid, who is now the full-time outward personality, was rarely seen himself. However, he had been very busy. That's for another episode. Campbell says he's been tracked to the Middle East, and this could be Snake's chance to go in and kill him. That's it, pretty much. Campbell will clear Snake as a UN inspector so he can get some support from the inside. And that's pretty much what leads us to this moment. Of course, I do have to sneak in a Marvel thing here. This game actually came out the same month that the initial Old Man Logan comic book run started in the Wolverine title, written by Mark Millar and drawn by Steve McNiven. That too predicts a pretty bleak future where the Age of Heroes has ended as well. Kojima would even go on to note similarities between the 2017 film adaptation of Logan to Old Snake. Unfortunately, that was written by Mark Miller, which means it kind of sucks, but hey. Yeah, uh, well, since, you know, this is my uh, podcast and I get to shout all my likes and very few (laughs) dislikes at you, um, when I first started getting into reading Marvel comics and everyone recommended Mark Millar's The Ultimates, um, I just want to let you know I hate you uh, (laughs) because I know that's like the broad aesthetic of the MCU, but man, I despise every characterization in there, which is partially the point, but also it just sucks kind of uh to me yeah it's it's unpleasant like mark miller is unpleasant to read mm-hmm. uh, and that was very unpleasant to me so uh do not start there unless all you care about is the visual aesthetic of the mcu which is why would you do that in the first place so yeah when we pick up with the action snake begins his solo infiltration Otacon instructs him to head north a few city blocks where he set up a rendezvous point 
Like in previous games, Metal Gear Solid 4 sets you up with a tutorial segment of the game. The opening gecko scene set a tone and gets the player familiar with the intensity of this game's war zones. Following the exposition sequence, however, we are thrust back into a more classical stealth map, though with a twist. Unlike the previous titles, there is no unarmed portion of the gameplay here. There's guns littered all over the battlefield, so you can OSP right from the get-go, and Snake starts the sequence with an AK-102. And there are ongoing battles as you work through these maps, which usually ends with the PMC troops murking the mercs, unless you help help them out. The two maps you traverse here give the player a chance to familiarize themselves with Octacamo. There's a varied set of backgrounds and floor patterns to cozy up to and hide yourself. There's very little cover that will hide you forever. The troops are making their rounds in and out of buildings, and only the snake that remains still and out of sight can avoid detection. Verticality shows up already as well, as most buildings have multiple floors and paths to the goal can be found at and above ground level. These maps, while guarded, are sparsely so, giving the player plenty of space and time to work with the new controls, the crouch walk, and even practice some CQC. You'll get some navigation tips from Otacon, such as rolling to clear small gaps, and you can even test out the statue stealth mechanic, which allows Snake to blend in with stone statues to avoid detection. That stuff is more of a fun fun thing to do than a hardened stealth strategy, but if you do pose with the statues, Snake will rest his hand on the stone penis of another statue, eventually breaking it off if you hide long enough. Feel free to run wild with whatever symbolism you want to attribute to Snake breaking off the stone cock. Sadly, it doesn't get added to your inventory. Snake will eventually reach the rendezvous point, and here he meets up with Otacon. Well, not in the flesh, but as a transmitter screen on the Metal Gear Mark II, a miniaturized mobile terminal designed to provide Snake tactical support on the battlefield. Its visual design is lifted straight from Kojima's other game, Snatcher, with hints of Metal Gear models and wrecks worked into it. The Mark II delivers Snake some goodies. Namely, the Solid Eye and the Mark II itself, which again, Snake can be seen controlling with the PS3 controller. Hal also has some weapons for Snake, since he couldn't uh, have any when he initially embedded with the local resistance. Snake receives an Operator, the default handgun of this game. A nice piece of hardware, though Snake doesn't nut over it like his father did in receiving the M1911 in MGS3. There's also a tranquilizer gun with built-in permanent suppressor. I like to read that as like he still likes guns a lot, but he's just like too. He doesn't he, like he's. I mean, it's 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 about right. Like I think he just found out he's going to die. Mm-hmm. It was like he's not really shouldn't be that enthusiastic about all this stuff. Yeah, he he's kind of over that shit. It's a little bit of a Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon Four. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's just a little too old to be. Because um, you know, Naked Snake was kind of not a rookie, but you know that was his first mission for Operation Fox. Whereas in every sense of the word, this is Snake's last mission. It's a, it's a nice callback, though, and it's a nice... Um, it does feel like that MGS3 scene a little bit. Snake and the player are very thankful for these gifts, so why don't we use this time to play a little catch-up with our favorite man in the chair, Hal Emmerich, a.k.a. Otacon, voiced once again by Christopher Rand. It's me, Snake. Snake, it's me. Huh? Otacon? Sorry to keep you waiting, Snake. At this point, there's no Dave without Hal, no Snake without Otacon. And this time, Otacon is in full daddy mode. 
His MGS4 design has him in a sweater and some chic glasses with a bit of scruff and flowing mop of brown hair. He is clearly taking the throne as the best-looking Emmerich in the series. He's often shown in a long coat and gloves, the former a callback to the lab coat he wore in previous entries. Otacon, like Snake, is on a path to atonement and to absolve his sins and the sins of the father. But knowing his family's legacy with nuclear weapons and his own actions creating wrecks, Otacon has his own sense of purpose in this game, to help end this world of patriots and metal gears and to stick with his best pal Solid Snake until the end of all things. We've talked a lot previously about both the soldier and the scientist being pitiable figures in the story of Metal Gear. While guilty of their own sins, we see how they are used and manipulated by the power structures, be it the philosophers or the patriots, and how science and battle are two sides of the imperialism token. In that, Snake and Otacon form a double helix of sorts, as both stand in for those sides. Since the events of MGS2, the NGO philanthropy which Otacon started has been dissolved, but he continued working with Snake to investigate the Patriots and give chase to Liquid. Hal would go on to take custody of Sunny after she was freed thanks to Raiden, and would eventually become her legal guardian in the aftermath of MGS4, according to some outside documents of varying canonical worth. Okay, I just wanted to say that I um, I really like Otacon's design in this game. Like, he looks... We talk a lot about Snake's, Snake self-actualizing, and Anakin does, in, in, but he doesn't get as much time to do that in MGS2. Like, he's still portrayed as a cooler, tougher character in MGS2, but he's also, he's got to have so much of his screen time is devoted to causing him pain. And that happens in this game, too, but I feel like this is, like, fully, I in a lot of ways, Anakin is, like, the leader at this point, because Snake is just so deteriorated and sort of a... Uh, Single-minded, he just ha- he just wants to find liquid. He doesn't really have like other goals really at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so Otacon is kind of the self-actualized like leader of like mostly his plans, mostly his ideas. He's actively participating in battle for well, he, not battle, but I mean yeah, in, in battle, his way, I would say. yeah, yeah, in his way with the Mark II and all that. Yeah, and I just really like his design. I really like the way he's characterized. He's he is no longer a, like he is not a dork being in a locker anymore. Mm-hmm. Otacon is cool and, and like he's the handsome one now that Snake looks like he looks and yeah it's just good it's it's good like there's still a lot of problems with the way I mean all the Naomi stuff is in my opinion bad but it's not it's not Christopher Randolph's performance is good and Otacon is, is a good character in this I yeah people always talk about like I, I kind of wish there was like I'm hoping if they ever do another and uh, re- uh, revenge and set he shows up in some fashion I would like to see him Sunny was taken by the Patriots right after she was born. She never even met her parents. She's spent her entire childhood inside the net. That's why she has trouble speaking. Her home is in the computer. She can only see the outside from the inside. She's always in there, searching for herself, searching for her family. She's trying to find out who she is and where she's going. Might as well talk about Sunny here too for a second, since there isn't that much else on Otacon anyway. Sunny is the daughter of Olga Gerlukovich from MGS2, the child who would die if Raiden failed his mission. 
Olga, if you remember, gave her own life to help Raiden along. Sunny was held in isolation by the Patriots, having only digital access to the world. She had poor social skills, interacting mostly with Otacon and Snake, the latter not being known for his conversation skills, and she also had a stutter. Each opening act starts with Sunny making eggs, usually accompanied by her singing along with Fibonacci numbers or elements of the periodic table. If Sunny's eggs turn out good, Snake will supposedly be lucky on his mission. No, they don't turn out good until Naomi gives her some pointers. Otacon would teach Sunny to program and hack, and seemingly by the end of MGS4, she's a hacker to surpass Otacon himself. Sunny would also become ensorcelled, metaphorically, by Naomi Hunter, who stood in as a role model of sorts to Sunny. She didn't really have any female presences in her life, what with her two gay dads and her mom having passed five years earlier. It's Naomi that encourages Otacon to allow Sunny to have a life outside the Nomad, which becomes easier once the Patriots regime is taken down. I mentioned Naomi and also want to highlight that her and Vamp both are key character relationships to Otacon in this game. Hal hasn't forgotten Vamp killing Emma, and Naomi acts as a brief love interest who ends up using Hal as a patsy of sorts, not unlike how Eva used Snake in MGS3. There's also a moment in Act 4 where Hal's relationship to Sniper Wolf comes back to the front. We will break down Naomi and Vamp in later episodes, as well as all of the Shadow Moses occurrences, so I'll leave off that for now. Now well-equipped and with Otacon at his side, in a way, Snake makes his way deeper into the city. He's to meet the informants of Rat Patrol 1, who can give Snake the exact whereabouts of Liquid Ocelot. The next couple maps have you work from the Warzone into the Militia Safehouse. The fighting outside the safe house is one of the first points where Snake can really ingratiate himself to the militia by helping them sub- subdue PMC forces. The militia warehouse maps are all interior and gives the game a chance to show off its darker and poorly lit uh, environment. For the burnished metal we're all familiar with, and like every game from the like 2005 to 2010 had that Resident Evil style dark, rusty metal look. It was bad. Yeah. With, uh, uh, what's it called? With a couple light bulbs illuminating yeah. the... Yeah. yeah. Everything had to look like the caves from the first Iron Man. It's like, I don't want this. Most of the passages are pitch black with a couple light bulbs in the common rooms for somewhat better lighting. As Snake stealths his way through, you can pick up a lot of the world building. Troops will be talking about geckos, the unrelenting PMC swarms, and allude to certain soldiers that seem more beast than man. There's some decent equipment to be picked up here, including RPGs and white powder grenades, but nearly all of it is locked due to the ID tagging system governing the war economy. There is also another militia outfit here, similar to the cloak snake wore in the opening, which can be donned to fit in with the militia troops. But there's one more thing I must do. I want to end our recap there. We'll save the gun launderer, diaper monkey, pooping man, and hot redhead for next time. 
But since we did our dives into David and Hal, I wanted to end this episode talking about the game's original ending. We have already repeatedly mentioned that this is Snake's last mission, and the opening game menu already shows Snake ready to seppuku his brains all over Big Boss's grave. But Kojima envisioned a different ending early on, which his dev team ended up nixing. In the original treatment, Snake and Otacon were going to turn themselves in for their crimes, quote-unquote. If you recall, Snake was pretty much considered a terrorist since the tanker incident in MGS2. Solidus's faint at the big shell surely didn't help. And even before that, their NGO philanthropy was considered fringe and extremist at best. And with Hal being the inventor of Rex and the one who got that ball rolling again, he is complicit too. From there, we would have had a trial, a sentencing, and finally an execution of both Snake and Otacon. In the previous episode, I mentioned this game's end credit song, and our new podcast ending song, was Here's to You by Ennio Morricone and Joan Baez, which will also be in Ground Zeroes. This song was chosen based on the original ending, as it appeared originally in the 1971 film Sacco e Vanzetti, a a French-Italian docudrama. It recants the story of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two Italian-American immigrants and anarchists who were wrongly accused of murder in 1920 and sentenced to death in 1927. The trials were wrapped up in a lot of anti-Italian and anti-immigrant rhetoric, and as their innocence became more assumed after their conviction, became a rallying cry of justice as demands rose from all over the world to release the two men. They, of course, would not be and their execution went through as planned by the electric chair. But even decades after, more information would come out that seemed to show their innocence, and on the 50th anniversary of their execution, in 1977, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis issued a statement that Sacco and Vanzetti were unfairly convicted and wanted all disgrace removed from their names. I want to add that their execution date and anniversary was August 23rd, only because August 24th is Kojima's birthday and the start of Virtuous Mission. The lyrics to Here's to You are four lines repeated. Here's to you, Nicola and Bart, rest forever here in our hearts. The last and final moment is yours. That agony is your triumph. In this, Snake and Otacon would be someone who the player knew was innocent, even though they met the most grisly end imaginable. I believe Firing Squad would be the manner of their execution. So though they go out in agony, we would know that this was a victory, and seemingly the world would eventually come around to that as well. But we, the player, would never see this posthumous redemption, something I'm sure I'll talk about when we get to undercutting video game power fantasies. I also like the idea of of a snake being shot and then just like eating a ration. I'm fine. Uh, Naked snake pulling bullets out and burning them, like pausing every time he gets shot to do that and surviving it. Gojima was too much of a coward to give us that that uh, that enhanced game, gameplay sensation. Might be the first time someone's called Kojima a coward That's <laughs> for right. what he's willing to do in his stories. No, I, I think I think that the dev team was absolutely right to nix that, but it's also like it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I don't think it would be a terrible ending. Um, I kind I do like what we got overall better, even though it comes with all the overwroughtness that all of MGS Four comes with. Yeah, but I do like like the final moments between uh big boss and solid snake i like the music they put to that i'm sure this could have been great but after everything else we endured with the game and specifically the cutscene and the stories that would have felt less great (laughs) left a less great 
great taste in my mouth. Yeah, it's also like uh, um, it, it, I, I do kind of appreciate it in the David Chase sense because David Chase is infamous for mm-hmm. like when people complained about there being too many dream sequences in Sopranos, he started making episodes that were entirely dream sequences. They would have people. There's literally a critic who complained that there wasn't enough killing, so they cast an actress who looked like her and murdered her. <laughs> um, it's it's a little. It's actually, actually, I'm not actually that crazy about that. That one went a little too far, but um, I do like the idea of Kojima finally being like, "All right, if I like executing Solid Snake on screen, it's certainly one way to not have to make any more Solid Snake games." Yeah, and I think it would be different if this was like one giant victory lap for Solid Snake, and then you kill him at the end, kind of like yeah. you know Adam Sandler at the end of Uncut Gems in a way. <laughs> but this is such like a beatdown of the character, <laughs> like literally his last moments are him crawling and like being melted that I don't think the execution adds anything that we're not already getting through the punishment he endures to finish this mission. Colonel, why would you show me it and then not give none of me half it? What the fuck? Colonel, this is how I win. Colonel. Otacon. Even the dead have ears. Snake, we've got to go. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. Nano's got me where I am today. I'm doing a thumbs up. You can't see it. (laughs) Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, here's to you. Metal Gear Solid 4 opens up with the... Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 today's just a bad day. <laughs> it is done in the style of Japanese calligraphy, but written in American English alphabet. Don't know what to call it. The Phoenician L- alphabet? The Latin, the Latin alphabet. The Latin alphabet. Thank you, Mr. English Major, sir. Wait, is that right? Hold on. <laughs> yes. The Roman alphabet. That's the, you always hear that with you. Sorry. And the, can't forget the pooping man. Also, I gotta mention the pooping man. <laughs> <laughs>